If you're anything like us here at Arts Interrupted, you love this time of year. If only because of the outfit potential. Turtlenecks, corduroys, and Chelsea boots, oh my. And of course, at the end of this month, everyone will don the most significant outfits of all, Halloween costumes. For one day each year, you can shirt conventions of appropriate dress and wear whatever, and ultimately be whoever you want. But what if you don't want to be limited to one, maybe three days out of the year to become cloaked in costumage? Well, turns out you don't have to. As long as you're a wildly successful and enigmatic superstar, that is. In this episode, we're going to get into the who's who of the great masked musicians and talk about why this phenomenon came about and if it's here to stay. Welcome to the Musician Underneath. I'm Max Shaw. I'm Sam. I'm Avon. I'm Emily. And I'm Max Rosenzweig. And this is Arts Interrupted, the Michigan Daily's premier arts and culture podcast. I'm rolling up in the back of a G-Wagon. I'm always on G status. Look, 40 on my lap, that's the heat package. I'm from a hood where we beat rappers. So let's start our foray into costuming in 1966, the year the Beatles permanently retired from touring. This break from touring was the longest stretch of time the band had ever had to explore their own identities after spending four years as a singular unit. Paul McCartney spent this time indulging in the simple pleasures of life again, aided by a disguise. He hid his face under a false mustache, glasses, and slicked back hair. In fact, his disguise was so effective, he was turned away from a nightclub in Bordeaux. The anonymity of everyday life was transformative. It was liberating not having expectations to live up to. Around this time, the Beatles decided they no longer wanted to be seen as the Beatles they were known to be. We were fed up with the Beatles, McCartney said. We really hated that fucking four little mop-top boys approach. We were not boys, we were men. The solution was simple to McCartney, a disguise. Through a persona of a different band, they could create a totally different image and sound. And so Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band was formed. Ironically enough, this album, one of their most acclaimed and influential, came about from a decision to not be the Beatles. In the album cover, we see the Fab Four in character in the center, standing next to their previous solemn-looking selves. It is also interesting to note that the next album they released would be their self-titled one. And while the Beatles were exploring their identity, David Jones was studying Buddhism and learning jazz sax. Around the age of 20, he decided to change his stage name to something more dramatic, David Bowie. From there, Bowie went through a slew of changes, most noticeably Ziggy Stardust, an androgynous bisexual alien sent to deliver a message of peace and hope before the end of the world. At his final show as Ziggy, after over a year of touring, Bowie left the crowd saying, not only is this the last show of the tour, but it's the last show that we'll ever do. Aladdin Sane was the next chapter in the saga of Ziggy Stardust. The name was a play on words of Aladdin Sane, and is thought to have been inspired by Bowie's schizophrenic half-brother. Similar to the inspiration of Aladdin Sane, Thin White Duke was born at the height of Bowie's cocaine usage and depression. The Thin White Duke was in stark contrast to Ziggy, he was a troubled man who sang about love all while being numb to emotion. Even the costume, platinum blonde slick black hair, black trousers, white shirt, and a waistcoat had completely evolved. Bowie himself even said that this period felt like a piece of work by an entirely different person. In all, Bowie's personas gave him the freedom to be anybody he wanted. He immersed himself so fully into his roles, it became difficult for him to separate acting from reality. Bowie remarked that Ziggy wouldn't leave me alone for years. Although iconic, these different personas affected Bowie's mental health. I really did have doubts about my sanity, he said. Yet one of the band's most synonymous with showmanship 
is KISS. Founded in 1973, most of the band's live performances involve a complex display of movement pyrotechnics, and of course, their wild personas, notably discerned by their makeup. Even though only Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley are the lone consistent members of the group, most people can easily recognize KISS in many of their songs, like Detroit Rock City, which have been a staple of rock music for decades. Propelled to a more sustained and encompassing stardom by their fourth album, Alive, considered to be one of the greatest rock albums of all time, KISS became defined during that time by their eclectic playing style, the tongue-wagging of Simmons, and the defined persona that simply comes from being a member of the hard-rocking band. But now we're moving to the mid-70s and early 80s, as a young 19-year-old named Prince has just released his self-produced, self-titled album. It was a gorgeous blend of synth-pop, psychedelia, and rock. From then on, the singer would release 39 albums, each unlike the other. He had the ability to defy labels and engage with new sounds and ideas of expression. His name was changed to a symbol that was a combination of the male and female symbols, which fans referred to as love symbol. There's two versions, one and two. He then went by the artist formerly known as Prince, or simply the artist. He even had a whole new persona on his album Camille, a pitched up voice as a feminine alter ego. Like Bowie, Prince's androgyny led him to have an amorphous sexuality that transcended the bounds of both gender and racial stereotypes. But his playing with costumes and facades, not to mention his virtuistic ability, transformed him into a revolutionary. Now we come to the early 90s, where Guy Manuel de Homem and Thomas Bangalter, who met his students in Paris, had recently disbanded their indie band, Darlin, and conceived the personas that would become the dynamic electric pop duo, Daft Punk. Known for their dynamic style and hidden robot personas, Daft Punk first rose to prominence in the late 90s with their debut album, Homework, and achieved even more success with successive albums and notable collaborations with prominent artists like Julian Casablancas and Pharrell Williams. Inspired by an early review of their band Darlin, where they were referred to as Daft Punky Trash, Christo and Bangalter decided to use the review to their advantage and began the duo Daft Punk after Darlin disbanded. Adopting the robot personas in 1999, which was inspired by the 999 bug, Daft Punk has continuously worn their robot helmets publicly throughout most of their existence, in live performances, and even acceptance of awards. According to the duo, the robot personas and design are meant to reflect ideas of both old and new age views of the future, and its simplicity and reflectiveness. They can express anything they want through the small costume form, which to them is the whole point of adopting personas in the first place. Cultivating a playful and sexual appeal, the UK girl group Spice Girls came to be when five young women auditioned for an ad to become a part of a manufactured girl group in the late 1990s. The group found their core values when they fought together to switch management and take on their well-known girl power attitude. In an article from Famous Magazine, Top of the Pops, the girls were given nicknames that highlighted and gave personas to them, solidifying individuality along with names that loosely described the gals. Ginger, Sporty, Posh, Scary, and Baby Spice became their monikers. With each of these given names also came a little spunky personality along with it. Baby Spice, or Emma Bunton, was the innocent, sweet, and often characterized as virginal girl, alongside Sporty Spice, or Mel C, who took on the role of the competitive tomboy of the squad. 
Scary Spice, or Mel B, was known for her wild and party animal persona, and Posh Spice, also known as Victoria Beckham, was characterized as timid with a proper edge. Last, we had Ginger Spice, formerly known as Sexy Spice, or Jerry Hallowell, who was the sole proprietor of the group's social commentary piece. Ginger Spice took on the role of the feminist, or so was thought of, as the outspoken, passionate member. Each member had an iconic outfit that fit their personality, and each member also had specific outfits with their performances to highlight their personas. Now let's go to the early knots. In 1998, Damon Alburn from Blur and Jamie Hewlett became bored of MTV. There's nothing of substance here, Hewlett said, so we got this idea for a virtual band, something that would be a comment on that. Thus, the Gorillas became a manufactured bound where the boundary between fiction and reality was completely blurred. With each album they released, they created a complex story of the fictional animated characters. It got to the point where the narrative they created was so wholly encompassing, nobody really cared who was behind it. As a virtual band, Gorillaz was never categorized into one genre of music. They also had total freedom and control of their image, and could manipulate their animations and storylines as they pleased. In early performances, the band members performed as silhouettes behind a screen. When that became old and unexciting, the band used 3D holograms with pre-recorded music. Now their live shows merge fiction and reality and integrate both the artists and the animations on stage. Stephanie Germanata, better known as Lady Gaga, gained notoriety once her debut record, The Fame, came into the spotlight in 2008 and left its mark on modern pop music. The New York native is an openly bisexual woman and her impact on the LGBTQ community can be seen in her outfits as well as her visual performances and content. Wearing a drag heel is nothing new to Gaga, as well as wearing flamboyant wigs in a company with outrageous infamous outfits, like the legendary meat dress that was a statement she made against the homophobic US military's don't ask, don't tell policy. Germanata has often discussed her stylistic influences, saying that her entire career is a tribute to David Bowie. She has also made cultural sound waves when she was able to change her visual outfits at every outing to be completely different and acquire a narrative on its own. It seems that she has been able to occupy and shapeshift into several personas that have over time outlined who Lady Gaga is. Whether it be Hairbo Gaga, Oscar-nominated Anjnu Gaga, Mitras Gaga, Dancer Alien Gaga, or Biker Gaga, Stephanie Germanata is anything but the norm. Lana Del Rey rose to prominence in the wake of Gaga's glitter bomb in the early 2010s with a costume more subtle in nature, but just as important to her overall brand. Born Elizabeth Woolridge Grant in upstate New York, her image was one that combined Americana, old Hollywood glamour, and the aesthetic of a cocaine kingpin's girlfriend. Say that five times fast. This persona is far from Del Rey's reality. See, the cop ex-boyfriend in that adorable, albeit not very functional, mesh mask. She's depended so heavily on this image that it's become synonymous with and deeply entwined with her music. So much so that the contrast between her actual self has become infamous and bordering on humorous for her fans and critics alike. Marina Diamandis, once known as Marina and the Diamonds, and now just Marina, started gaining traction around the same time as Lana with the release of her 2012 album, Electra Heart. For the accompanying visuals, she inhabited a character of the same name who is a sort of repressed housewife meets crazed chanteuse. The bleached blonde hair pinned in massive curlers and the iconic heart stamp on her cheek were an extremely strong visual for this era of her career. 
With the help of aesthetic-obsessed Tumblr bloggers, this would come to be her most commercially successful album to date. The commitment to this persona was more than just surface level, as it permeated into the songwriting on the album, and she was able to fully inhabit the character in every facet of her work. Unlike many of these other artists, however, this was a short-lived costuming, as she shifted to a more naturalistic and personal style with her subsequent releases. So why do we care? What do artists gain from these costumes or brand changes? Is it a personal choice or a more calculated, career-driven move? How have we seen costumes and facades develop over the past six or seven decades that we just covered? And obviously, the big question always looms. Will this trend last? Fortunately, we gathered the troops for a classic roundtable to help maybe answer some of these unknowns. Let's do it. Okay, y'all. We just talked about so many artists. Um... And I'm curious what you guys think the changes have been. Like, obviously, I think with, like, the Beatles and Bowie, it was, in Prince, too, it was definitely more, like, concerted effort. Um, perhaps it, it was revolutionary at the time. It was new. Um, what what about now? Is, is this even new anymore? I honestly sometimes just think that, like, this is a part of being an artist in the industry. Yeah. Like, sometimes I feel like, I see myself listening to a musician and I'm like, okay, so like, what's their, what's their thing? You know, what makes them special? But you know, besides a sound, which honestly isn't necessary. I think that now it's also like a lot easier because, you know, back in the time of like Beatle and Bowie, it was like very theatrical and like you had to be so theatrical for it to come across. But now because, you know, a musician's career is so much broader and that, you know, extends to social media and, you know, higher production value music videos and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, it's easier for more people to do it because it's not, it's also not as big of like a step as it was back then because it is so much like it has been happening for so long. It's not as bold as it was necessarily now. I think part of the reason too, why like it was more established or just more like apparent earlier was because it was, I, I think it was like twofold. The reasons why people were costumes, one of them being that they wanted to hide like aspects of their personality or their own personal life that they mm. just didn't want people to see. So they would like, you know, build a persona. Like you can look at that through like many different, like Prince, for example, it's like you didn't exactly know his like exact sexuality, like, or like anything like that, which is a big thing. Or, um, yeah, I don't but know. But it's a sign of the times, you know, like, being non-binary gay whatever like having open sexuality is like super normal now and if not mm-hmm. um encouraged within yeah, yeah. artists especially those who are theatrical and performative you know it i think a lot of the times they go hand in hand not to sound stereotyping but it's kind of true um and so it's not as like crazy and wild of someone being like n- you know, um, ambiguous. So yeah, I think kind of like what Emily said, it's, it's just really not shocking anymore because it's like, cool. I like this. I'll take it as it is. (laughs) I have a question about this. Do we think it's cooler for an artist to keep reinventing themselves? Cause we've talked about Taylor Swift in the last episode, um, and how maybe that can be frowned upon not having a set identity. 
So mm-hmm. just what good. do people think? Yeah, good question. I feel like it really depends on how it's executed. I feel like a lot of the times, I personally, I think that Taylor's effort is more for capital gain <laughs> as opposed to like actually expressing her creative interests and yeah. like trying to reinvent herself creatively. Um, so I think, I think it's cool when it, you can tell that it's an authentic, creative, artistic choice, but when it's just like a cash grab, I'm not into it. Right. Yeah, and like not to pick queens against queens, but I feel like looking at Lady Gaga, it just feels more of like a stylistic standpoint. Like she goes all out. She yeah. music videos are like complete. I mean, yeah, Taylor has like the album change, but it's not that much like drastic. Like I want to see her go off and like change it completely. I wonder if we'll have an episode this season that we don't talk about Taylor Swift. <laughs> but like, and I think that's like so indicative of like who yes. she is and you know the rebranding it's just like she always wants to be seen and always wants to have attention and and you know to some extent like we said in the last episode that's fair you know well, it's fair also play. a bit of a double like, standard you too because you can look at male artists like drake for example like i mean like he's reinvented himself like a million times like and i don't think anybody says anything about like he has like, like has he? To <laughs> yeah what? like what I, okay i think at the beginning you could say it's more like soulful Audrey? Or, I, okay and again Audrey? i'm not like a huge drake fan <laughs> yeah no, I I think you're right, and it was definitely more like it was so far all R and B in the beginning, and I think he embraced a lot of the trap music associated. Like he he does songs with like Little Yachty or Future. He made a whole album with Future. You I know, felt like a like generational shift. Yeah, didn't feel like an actual. Okay, we're going off, we're but it's also a generational but... shift with Taylor. It's just that we're focusing on Taylor more for like a different because it's just more. It's like I don't know more amplified, right? Yeah, it's more marketed. I'm, I'm also curious. Um, as always with anything we talk about culturally is how like the internet has played a part in this mm-hmm. um, because I don't know because like you we we like to think that we know social we know celebrities more um, because we see them on you know Twitter and Instagram and we see their identity and who they are mm-hmm. but there's also something mysterious and interesting about somebody who one like you know isn't isn't like that you know like we don't see them on instagram or whatever but also someone who may be on instagram but is is constantly changing and constantly different i don't know yeah i mean i would say that like you know not to get like super you know philosophical but like like social media itself can function as a costume and because it does I know you know let it soak in but yeah I think because it does function you know like you said we think that it allows us to connect to artists more but really it it's detaching and it is another thing between us and them because it's another way that they can you know filter their lives filter their appearance filter every single thing to make it look exactly how they want it to us and so we perceive it, Catering you know, it, it is, you know, dressing up in a way, just maybe not overtly a quote unquote costume. Every artist that has a social media has mm, a persona because mm-hmm. they're t- they're choosing how to portray themselves to the public. And so, I don't know, maybe it's more interesting to talk about artists that don't or aren't very um, public. Sufjan, you know. like literally, yeah. I think about it way too often. He's a often. Tumblr. It's it's a, it's like fan though. Those are fan ran. Aren't they both fan run? I think Sufjan's is run by him, or at least by people close to him. Okay. And like Frank Ocean, 
similar vibe. Frank Ocean. Okay, no, he has an true. Instagram. He has an Instagram, but remember, it was like a secret for a while. Yeah, and then people are like, wait, yeah. are you Frank Ocean? And they're like, oh, fuck. Oh, my God. Wait, that's like even more... At least to me, that's even more fascinating when, like, Lord had her onion ring Instagram account. Like, that Celebrity is what Finstas. I honestly, like... Celebrity Oh, Finstas. my God. What a theory. Um, I think a lot of movie stars don't have Twitter and Instagram. Uh-huh. From, like, my experience of, like, trying to, like, tweet for publications and find movie stars and, like, directors and stuff, they don't have social media. And I'm just curious what that's about because, you know, I feel like those are... Like, when you direct or when you act, like, you're always a different character. So there isn't something that they have to maintain. Um, Whereas if you're a musician, like, it it is, like, who you are. People are cheering you on Um, instead of your, like, character or your your skill. It's like, I like this person. I like the words you say and the things you do. So I think that's really interesting. I know, yeah. Like, just talking about, like, like, a theory for, like, the movie star stuff, I think... It's partially, you know, very much on purpose because, like, when you see someone in a movie, you want to see them as that character and not have any association of that they are a real person with, like, a personal life and stuff. So, you know, having any stuff on social media would detract from that fantasy. Do you think if, like, Bowie and Beatles and and Prince, and in their prime, because I think Prince eventually had an Instagram, but in their prime had social media while they were doing all of these costume situations, personas, do you think it would have been as revolutionary if we could also see it on the internet? I don't know. Well, I mean, you also have to look at the era, right? I mean, because I think musicians now, like, I, I think part of the reason why so many are in social media is to differentiate themselves in what has become a much more crowded field first. Um, but second, I, I mean, I, I don't know how revolutionary it would be, just because I also think a big a big part of the reason why they donned personas in that time was also to obfuscate the public from who they really were. So I think you can look at that from, like, a ton of different musicians. Right. I, don't, and, I don't know. And, and I guess what I was is sort of a leading question. But, like, you know, like, it, it would take away that whole aspect, you know, of the persona. Because you would see that it wasn't, it was just for the performance. So I think. Well, you would, already could add to it, right? Like how you guys are talking. I think, I think that, like, a lot of what makes these personas so fun and, like, so engaging is the mystery behind it. Is like, th- like, that is reality as far as we know, this persona that they're presenting. So, like, as soon as you have Instagram where it's, like, I'm a real person and it's, like, this behind-the-scenes thing, it's just, like, not as fun. Yeah, and from, like, my experience, I when I finally chose to look up Lana and, like, her, you know, background, it really ruined it for me. And I was like, mm, so she's not this, like, weird, like, badass or, like, I don't know, like, I mean, of course she's not, but I, I don't know, I, like, thought it was really cool at the time until I looked it up, so that was a little weird, kind of ruined it. Are there any situations when we like the facade more than we like the, the, the person, like, like, like Lana is- So, Liberace was a closeted <laughs> gay man, he died of HIV, he had many gay lovers, but he was closeted the entire time, and he utilized a persona- to try and distract people away from his sexuality because people would have enjoyed him more in the persona than they would in his sexuality. So, I, I mean, there are most definitely instances. I think it's become less apparent now just because he become more progressed as a society. That's so interesting because I feel like that's, like, counterintuitive to, like, all the other examples that we've actually, like, used because we're, like, hey, like, everyone dresses up like this to, like, 
like, you know, transcend gender and, like, be openly sort of gay and sexual, whereas, like, Liberace is the complete opposite. So it's, it's so interesting in the antithesis, one might say. So it's so interesting how, like, costumes can function so differently for people. I know, and I was I was also just going to ask, do we think that costumes, like, I mean, we've talked about Lana and now Liberace, but um, do we think they're gimmicky or more gimmicky than they are authentic? Their point is to be gimmicky, isn't it? Like, I mean, that's like part of the appeal of wearing a costume yeah. is so they can just be so flamboyant and outrageous that they're different or, you know, more cool or interesting than other. Like, look, look at Elton John. Another too. example that I was just um, thinking about was the Beatles, like, they they created their persona to get away from the public eye and to to focus on themselves and and figure out who they were as a band. Yeah, and and like the Beatles also had like hella eras. Like hella eras. Um and so I think like a lot of the the thing that we also talked about earlier or I guess when we were planning the episode was that this also is a way to explore general musicality and, you know, general, like, you know, if the Beatles didn't have that whole persona, perhaps the switch from like poppy bands, like if they were still poppy and making Sgt. Pepper stuff or Revolver stuff or White Album stuff, whatever, um, it would have been kind of weird. And I don't think it would have been as, um, uh, successful because they're like well the the Beatles the Beatles are doing this weird music but like with the addition of the whole persona they could kind of you know um, break off from who people thought they were and you know expand um, their you know explore musical yeah, genres I, I totally see that yeah. uh, and um, a couple two examples that come to mind to me right now um, Miley Cyrus current Bob rock situation she's pulling off at the moment you know, that is to go along with, you know, her rock music, which I think is dope. And then, like, Rico Nasty got this, like, whole mohawk kind of thing, like this cyberpunk, because, like, she's doing hyperpop. So, like, it kind of fits the situation. It works along with the album. So it's more cohesive, I would say. Last question, as we as we do. Do we think people are going to continue costuming and personas throughout music history? Ooh. I'm thinking right now, it's really hard to become an up-and-coming um, musician, I feel like, without social media. Like, that's how you get it spread out. At least that's what I think about, like, listen to my song on TikTok. I think you almost you almost need to, because there is there is such an oversaturated music sphere. Maybe not oversaturated, but just, like, there's a lot of people, and, you know, there has to be a way in which you are different, um, in which you are unique, and something never no one's ever seen before. And, you know, Lady Gaga did it. You know, she was this crazy pop star, this slutty, um, weird person, and she did it. And, you know, I think we'll always see people trying the most extremes in order to get. I think also as long as, you know, people want some privacy, too, they're going to do it just as a means to separate their, you know, personal life from their professional life. I think it's going to be harder for an artist to be more authentic as time moves on. Um, and I also think that maybe more people will be using costumes and personas to lash out, like with all the misinformation, <laughs> classic, um, fake news. Like uh, if if the like, people are gonna say things about you, like why not make it something yeah. that like that's so true you're doing that they're gonna talk about. 
that's about it for this week's spooky episode of Arts Interrupted. As always, this episode has been brought to you by our hauntingly talented executive producer, Sam Small, our hair-raising senior editors, Emily Ohl, and me, Max Rosenzweig, our spine-chilling content creators, Avn Kutyal and Max Schabel, our supernatural audio producers, Will Peterson, Ben Schreier, and Sam DeBose, and last but not least, our audio engineer, Spencer Harris, the friendly ghost. Now, go out there. Well... Don't go out there. Stayin' silly. And dress up as whoever you want to be. But don't ghost us. Stay in tune for our next episode in two more weeks. See ya. Boom.